honored to be here with you guys today, and uh, thanks so much. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome. I love it when people respond to me when I say good morning. Awesome. Well, hey, if you're joining us here in person, if you're online, thank you for joining us for our Memorial Day service. Obviously, we are one service this weekend due to the, just the holiday long weekend. We're excited that you're here. I'm thankful that you chose to spend one of your Memorial Day weekends with us or days of the weekend with us. So we're excited that you're here. Hey, uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Preston Waller. Uh, I am the student pastor, if it'll go. If not, they'll click through it for me, okay? Um, so we will have them click through it for me. It's no big deal. Um, so my name is Preston Waller. I'm the student pastor here at Forest Park Church. I have the honor of being able to speak with you today. Um, but before we start, and I know we, we're ready to get in the message, I hope, and I know that we're ready to almost get home too. Um, but the reality is today is a special day in the history of our country as we celebrate Memorial Day. It is not just a weekend, a day that we get to have an extra day off of work, but it's a day that we remember the people who gave the greatest sacrifice for us to be able to do what we're doing today, which is living and walking in freedom. And so I want to honor them. You know, we remember the men and women who gave their lives for our freedom. Freedom is never free. And so they made a sacrifice, and it reminds me so clearly of what Jesus says in John 15, 13, where he says, there's no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross, and that's what many men and women of our country have done for our freedom. So before we start, I'd love for us just to take a moment of silence to remember them together. Let's do that. Father, thank you for um, this day. Thank you for the sacrifices of men and women who faithfully served. I thank you for not only that, but the, the reflection of what that looks like in the gospel message and how blessed we are as a people to be able to be in this country, to be here today. I pray as we get into the message of the day that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what you would have to say to us today. Not only to receive it, but to believe it. And not only to believe it, but to walk in it faithfully once we're done. God, thank you for everything you've done. Most of all, your sacrifice for our freedom. 
on the cross. We praise you for that today as well. May everything we do be glorifying to you in your name. Amen. All right, guys. So uh, today, uh, my kind of goal is to just really lay before us one thing. And the one thing is, what is the life that we are called to as Christians look like? So many times in our life, I feel like there, when we don't know what we need to do or we don't know what to do, we fill in the gaps with what's natural to us. We fill in the gaps with what's natural. For instance, if you're cooking and you run out of a spice, your natural instinct is to grab something similar and substitute. And so today we're going to talk about what is the life that you and I are called to live by Jesus and what does it look like specifically. Now we all know we're supposed to love people, we're supposed to be kind, but on a practical level, what does that life look like? What does it look like on a day-to-day basis, a week-to-week basis? And so the, the problem that we run into again is that we oftentimes do what's natural to us when we're confused. However, the Bible makes clear that almost every command that Jesus has given us is unnatural to us. And so we can't simply say, well, I'll figure out how to live this life naturally as I go about my day, because what comes natural to us is not the commands that God has given us. His commands are unnatural in a way. Think about one of the simple commands, to love your enemies. That is not in any shape, fashion, or form a natural thing for us to do. It is only an unnatural thing for us to do. And so when we look at the life that we're called to, to live by Jesus, we have to get in our minds that this is an unnatural thing that we have to be intentional with. We have to be intentional with this life. In fact, one of the things, I, the reason this uh, sermon is titled A Hard Look in the Mirror is because it's sometimes so important if we're going to live the life that we're called to live, to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I living that way? Am I thinking that way? Am I walking with an attitude that is that of Jesus's? Because what happens is we typically go through life without stopping to pause and look in the mirror, to take a reflection, to say, how have I been thinking lately? How have I been acting lately? What has my attitude been lately? Oftentimes we just kind of go through life from day to day and we never stop to say, you know what, my mental health has really gone downhill the past week. Maybe I should do something about that. Or maybe I should treat my wife differently. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a philosopher, says it better than I could. He says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Essentially what he's saying is, and if we want to live life in a full, healthy manner, it means we have to stop, look backwards on how we have been living, but then we have to live forwards in a proactive way. So there's this idea of reflection, this idea of looking uh, backwards before we can start moving forwards is a, a philosophy that many people have talked about for centuries. And so we come to Matthew chapter 5, if you want to follow along with me today, you can go to Matthew chapter 5, will be verses 3 through 12. This is the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this is to many people, including many historians, many Christians, the greatest sermon ever preached, and it's of course by Jesus. Who else would preach it if it was perfect? And this is his first real public preaching, his very first message. At this time in his life, the rumors were already spreading. People were saying, who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? Is he really who he says he is? We've seen or heard of some miracles that he's been doing. Maybe we should go listen to what he has to say. And so you've got to imagine the scene. He's sitting on the top of a hill. He has thousands and thousands and thousands of people around him ready to listen to what the Messiah will say or the so-called Messiah to some of them will say. 
what will he tell us? you got to think, for the Jews, they were looking for a Messiah to come and overthrow the government, to overthrow Rome. What would he give us? What would his plan be? The Gentiles looking for a place to belong. How would he speak to them with him being a Jew? They all gather around to listen to his first message, and they're expecting so much greatness from him. But Jesus gives them something different. This is what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. Now there's way more in this sermon than just that. That's not the entire sermon. There's chapters. But the reality is this is how he starts. An introduction is so important to a message. If you take in any public speaking class, you know this. And so these people are waiting for the first message from the Messiah. And instead of coming out and saying, let's go overthrow the government, hey, you will belong now. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, meek, merciful, beggarly, hungry. He reaches the people they weren't expecting him to reach. And this message is so important because if you've noticed, and I'm sure you have, every line starts with one word, blessed. Blessed are blank. Blessed are these people. And what I find so funny is that blessing is not a, something we receive from God. If you've noticed, nothing about that is necessarily anything they're receiving. He said, blessed are these people. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessing is not something that you, that me, that any of us gets from God. But what happens if we saw blessing as a state of being? That we already are blessed. That we are a blessed people in God's family. That it wasn't something God gave to us, but blessing was who we are and it makes up entirely our being and our identity. That we didn't see it as God sometimes blesses me in certain seasons of life when I'm faithful. And when I'm not faithful, God doesn't bless me. And God blesses me when my children behave, but he's not blessing me when my children don't behave. He blesses me when I get a promotion at work, but he didn't want to bless me, so he let someone else get it. If we look at blessing as something we receive, we'll constantly be disappointed. But if you look at blessing as something that God has given you, and it is your entire being, that you are a blessed individual even today. Even in the midst of you going through a rocky marriage right now, here hoping for some hope, you're blessed. Even some of you who have recently been laid off, you're currently still blessed. Some of us who are still struggling with the COVID pandemic and maybe someone we know has or is dealing with COVID, they are blessed. 
Blessing is something we receive. We'll to live. I've made it very nice and neat for you. So if you take notes, you can do this. Um, let me come on. There we go. Uh, here are the 10 characteristics of that life. And we'll walk through all 10. And I promise some of them will take 30 seconds to a minute. Some of them will take two to three hours. We'll get through them a little bit. I'll kind of average like that. We'll average out of here. But you can tell each one is nicely packaged into a different category. We talk about the heart, the person, the affections, our actions, and then our worship as well. And so we, I just want to give this to you so as we walk through them, you'll be able to understand what's so important, which is this. It's always, 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 and this is with almost any message, it will always start with your heart. Sometimes you want, we want to come into church and we want you to tell me, what should I do? Do these three things, and your life will be blessed, or you will be in good with God. But what I've noticed is that our heart creates our person. Our person leads to what we are, are affectionate for. Our affections produce our actions, and our actions do, should result in worship, in worship. Because what we often do is we say, well, I'll extend mercy, and we don't really want to give people mercy. We just fake it, so we don't deal with our heart. We want to be pure, but instead of, you know, dealing with our heart, we just kind of put some restrictions on our phone, on our computer. We are told just keep your eyes in check, and that's what purity is. But purity will never be purity if we don't first talk about and deal with the heart, which is where everything stems out of. And so that's why we're going to start there today. So let's go ahead and begin. The first characteristic is beggarly, and I've given you a definition there. Beggarly really is poor and spirit. If you take time to read the Bible from beginning to end, and I'm sure some of you have, uh, one of the things you've noticed, or if I've noticed anyway, is that oftentimes a lot of the teaching of Scripture is repetitive. It's repetitive. You, you look at some of the commands or some of the things God said in Deuteronomy. He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then Jesus repeats that teaching in the Gospels. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So we see some of these teachings, and we come in and say, I've heard that before. Maybe even today you're saying, I've heard the Sermon on the Mount story before, Pastor. It's okay. I know what the 10 characteristics are. We oftentimes, and especially even for me as a pastor who hears more sermons maybe than you probably do since it's my job, sometimes come into church with the idea of, I want a fresh word, Pastor. I want a new thing. I want a new angle. I want to see it from a different perspective. I want something fresh. And God is saying, why do you want something fresh? You haven't done anything with what I've given you already. You haven't done anything with what I've given you already. Why do you want a fresh word when the word I've given you is still here and we haven't moved along? And so sometimes when we come to famous passages like Matthew 5, we have to center our mind around about this isn't new and it's not fresh per se, but this is something that God has called me to. And I promise you, as we talk about the life we're supposed to live, I want to emphasize this because it's so important. God does not call you to something that he won't eventually bless you through. So what I'm saying is basically, I'll say it another way. Uh, all the commands of scripture that God has for you and for me are not meant to take joy out of your life, but meant to instill a better life fuller of joy, fuller of peace, fuller of hope than the life you're currently living. And we'll talk about that more as we go. So what is beggarly? Well, I've defined it as poor in spirit. This is the person who comes to God and they say, I am nothing. I cannot be anything without God. 
this idea of beggarly, we think of a beggar on the street, and again, poor in spirit. It is the cry of John 3.30, which is the tattoo on my arm right here, which says, he must increase and I must decrease. It is a life that is centered around a consistent heart attitude of, without God, my life is nothing. My life is meaningless without God in it. It's a default position of our heart that without God, everything I pursue, everything I want is nothing in this world. And so, you know, your spouse may be something, your car, your job, but without God, you can still have everything you need. This is a beggarly life, a poor in spirit life, a life of humility, if you will. And again, C.S. Lewis says it better than I ever could. He says, humility is not thinking of yourself less, but thinking or not thinking of your, less of yourself, but of yourself less. So we don't think less of ourselves. This is not a pity party, poor in spirit. This is a sense of, wow, without God, I cannot be or do anything that means anything to my life. It is a humility that's based in a need and desire for God in their life. And that leads to the second characteristic. I told you some of them will get through pretty quick. Don't worry. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I know we have to go out of here and do things. Morning. That's the second characteristic. Again, we're in the heart. This is still dealing with our heart attitude. Mourning is one that recognizes um, that, you know, without the weight of our sin, basically. So how do we react to our sin? I said in my last message that, you know, sin is not meant to make us feel bad about ourselves, but sin's supposed to point us to Jesus Christ and the cross and what he did for us. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's very much smarter than I am, and he talks about the meaning of mourning in this passage, says this about what mourning is. He says, mourning, this is the mourning experienced by a man who begins to recognize the blackness of their sin the more he's exposed to the purity of God. Your sin in a, in a closet by itself will always just look self-defeating, self-pitiful, and depressing. But if you ch- look at your sin compared to the purity of God, you begin to see the difference. Um, I do not like, and I'm, I promise I'm going somewhere with this, I do not like Mexican food. My wife knows this. I'm not a big Mexican eater. And it's mostly because, if I had to be honest, and I hope no one from Three Amigos is watching today, um, that... Every restaurant I've been to that's Mexican serves the exact same food the exact same way with the exact same menu. To me, it's kind of boring and repetitive, and I'd rather have something fresher. So anyway, not my point. My point is that if you've ever been out to a restaurant, it doesn't have to be a Mexican restaurant. It's just the example I'm using. And I order the same thing everywhere I go. I order ACP. Just give me rice and chicken, dude. It's fine. I don't need anything else. It's fine. Something light, something to fill me up. Um, but there have been times, and I'm sure for you too, you'll order your food, ACP, that's what I always get, or for whatever it is for you. As you're waiting on your food, the table next to you, their, their food comes out. And at the Mexican restaurant, they have that sizzling plate, right? The one that's always steaming, looks like it literally just came off the grill. And you're like, wow. You see them walking to the table next to you, and you say, man, maybe I should have ordered that. That looks way better than rice and <laughs> chicken. It looks way better, right, way fresher. And I think oftentimes, again, that's how we see our sin. Is It's just what I always do. ACP is my normal. This is my habit. This is my routine. But until we step back and see what God is having for us at the other table where he is, we won't begin to understand what's better for us. And when we look at our sin, our sin will never look that bad if it's by itself. Sin looks terrible 
and unappetizing to our eyes and to our hearts when we see it in the light of who God calls us to be and who God says you and I are and what he has for us. And this idea of mourning is this idea of understanding the weight of our sin in our life and what it is and what it's doing to us presently. So these are the two hard attitudes, a sense of I need God, humility, and a sense of, man, my weight of the sin is terrible. I want something else. If you don't have a desire to pursue God and you don't necessarily look at your sin as something disgusting, then none of these characteristics of a life will matter to you because you're happy where you're at with your sin. It's not until we move out of that attitude with our heart we can begin to go forward. So that leads into a person, meekness. Have you ever noticed, and I know I'm using a lot of food analogies, have you ever noticed with meat, especially meat, I love steak, especially steak, that it's always better, and Scott knows this because Scott cooks a lot of steak, that steak is always better if you just marinate it overnight. When you let the juices sink in, when you let all the, the nice things get into the steak, especially a filet mignon, and you put it on, and you get a filet mignon, and it, you cut through it, it's like cutting through butter. You chew it up, it's like chewing through butter. It's so delicious to the palate, and you order it perfectly medium rare. By the way, we are a church that takes anybody, but if you order your steak well done, please go ahead and get up and out, out, of, out of the auditorium. <laughs> we, we don't need that here, okay? But, again, I, I joke, trying to lighten you up a little bit. Um, you know, <laughs> it, and then you have the steak that oftentimes a lot of people cook, including myself when I'm lazy, pull it out of the package, it was $5.00 put it on the grill, turn it once or twice, and put it on the plate and say, eat it, enjoy. No kind of care for it. When you cut it, it's like cutting <laughs> through metal. You chew it, you have to gnaw on it. You know, you're like, gosh, if I can just get through this piece of meat, maybe I can go to the next bite. When it, we talk about meekness, it's the same way with our life. Some of our lives, some of the things we're trying to do right now are like $2 steak from Dollar General. We're trying to chew through it. We're trying to chew through it, and it's hard, and it's, it goes down, and you almost feel like that wasn't even worth all the work I just put into it. And then God has filet mignon that's been marinated, and it's been perfectly cooked by a, a chef, and you eat it, and you're like, wow, this is delicious. The meek life is a life that follows the lead of God where he calls us to go. Meekness submits to those things that God is trying to draw out of us. A meek life is a life that lets God you open your arms and say, God, whatever you want to draw out of me, sin, habits, thought patterns, anything you want out of me, draw it out and get rid of it. It's not worth it. It's too tough. It's too nasty. And so the meek life is a life that says, God, wherever you call, wherever you call me, I will go. Whatever you want from me, I will follow. Uh, Tim, Qu Tim Keller, well, we're not there yet. So that's, this leads to, again, out of all the food analogies, it leads right into hunger. And I know we're getting hungry, okay, I promise. It, it leads into hunger. Notice Jesus says, you hunger after righteousness. We can hunger for a lot of things. I'm hungry right now. You know, my stomach's starting to growl. We hunger for food, but in a spiritual sense, we're also hungry for some things that aren't good for us, that aren't righteousness. A, a lot of my testimony has always been, I didn't grow up in church. First time I went to church, I was 14 years old. I didn't know anything about God, anything about Jesus. In high school, I struggled with depression very much. I didn't like my life. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like uh, the way things were going as a 14-year-old teenager. And, and so I, I fell into depression. 
and I was hungry for acceptance. I was hungry for numbing of the pain. And so that turned my life into drugs, to alcohol, to getting high, to getting drunk, to understanding that, hey, for a good next five, six hours, I promise you I'm not going to feel that depression. I'm not going to sense the longings in my life that I have. But the problem was I always woke up the next morning. <laughs> and the next morning, there it was again. A sense of shame, a sense of guilt, a sense of this didn't last very long. And the great part about the gospel for all of us today is that when we hunger after the righteousness of Christ, he is an overflowing fountain that never runs dry. He is the bread of life that never runs out, that he continuously multiplies. When we hunger for Jesus, we will never go hungry again. When we thirst for Christ's righteousness, we will never thirst again. But when we thirst and hunger for the things of the world, we will always wake up in about three to four hours and say, I want more. That did not last very long. And so now I'm ready for seconds. But Jesus' well never runs dry. His cup is never empty. The bread is everlasting. And he's saying, hunger for righteousness Hunger for righteousness. Uh, the question for us to consider in this section is this, is what Tim Keller says. And Tim Keller's a pastor, or was a pastor in New York City. Uh, I always love this verse because it keeps me in check as a person. He says, Jesus will never be all you need until he is all you have. Jesus will never be all you need until he's all you have. If I could just speak for a second without trying to go too far off course, I promise you, if you've ever gone overseas, and plenty of people who, who are here can attest to this, when you get out of this bubble that is America and you go overseas and you see the Christians living in third world countries or in China, you begin to understand maybe their faith is more vibrant, maybe their faith is more real and pure, and you see them and there's joy in their life because really Jesus is all they have. They don't have consistent water. They don't have planned meals for the week. They don't even, in China, have the legal ability to meet in a room and worship. They have to go underground and hide with their faith and have underground church. Jesus is, to them, all they need because he is, in a real sense, all that they have. He is that hope that fuels them when they don't have water. He is that peace that sustains them when they are forced out of buildings, when they are persecuted and in the Middle East threatening to kill their family. There is a real sense of Jesus is all they need because he's seen that that's all they need is because all they have. And I love that because it always reminds me when I become complacent, when I complain that, hey, you know, Jesus is not all I need right now because I feel like he's not the only thing I have in my life. So that leads us to mercy. And this is when we get into the actions now, when we talk about the actions that result of everything we've talked about. Now we're getting into this. This is the outworking of our hunger. The person who has received grace now is called to extend grace. Now we get a little quiet because this is where I don't like the part of the message. I love getting grace, Pastor, but I don't really like giving grace too much. Giving grace. When we have been given great grace, we are called now to extend great mercy and great grace to those around us. And guess what? Even the people in your life who do not deserve your grace and do not deserve your mercy, you're called to extend it to them. Mercy is grace in action, but it's fueled by a dependence on God himself saying, God, I don't know if I can forgive this person, but please fuel me so that I can forgive them because you've forgiven me of much. May I forgive them of little. 
this is where this <laughs> message gets a little tough, um, not only for, I'm sure you, you'll tense up, but it gets tense for me as well. Um, we always talk about spiritual immaturity in the church, especially in the pastoring world. We talk about spiritually immature Christians. To me, I've heard a lot of different definitions. This is just a definition I heard, and it always sticks with me. Spiritual immature Christians are this, in a, in a nutshell. Spiritual immaturity is having a Ph.D. in other sins, but a high school diploma in our own sins. A sense of, I know into complete detail all the things you're doing wrong, but I almost have an oblivious ignorance about what I'm doing wrong. And even if we take this outside of the church for a second, outside of spirituality, if we take this into day-to-day life, we have been trained almost in this country to walk into a restaurant, walk into a business, and hey, even walk into a church with a cynical eye that is able to pick apart everything they do wrong. I don't like how they have the movement lights. It's too much of a show. I don't like the preaching. The guy's always hounding me about what I need to do. Amen, I know, Pastor Scott. They don't have two kid ventures. How could they not have two kid ventures? I want to come at nine, but someone has to watch my kid. I don't really like that they have this decor. I don't really like that they serve food this way at this restaurant. I don't like that they are too techy or they don't spend enough money on outreach or whatever it may be. And as a pastor, I, I say this lovingly like, guys, you were called to not come in here and criticize this entertainment business that we sometimes see the church as. The church is a family. We, we call you to come in and say, how can I be a part? How can I make it better? In fact, that's always been one of the things that nags me a little bit with being a pastor. And I'm being real with you is that people will always come up to me and say, I liked Forest Park, but I didn't like how they didn't have KidVenture at 9. Okay. Have you ever thought that maybe the reason we don't have KidVenture at 9 is because we don't have enough volunteers? Maybe it's time to stop sitting and stop, start getting up. Have you ever thought that maybe the reason we can't put as much money into local outreach as we'd like to is because we need people to step up and give? Now it gets quiet in the room. I get it. I get it. We've talked about giving a lot lately. We've talked about volunteering a lot lately. But I promise you, when you see this building, you see Forest Park Church as an entertainment business that is here to only give you what you want so you can go home. And you never see it as a place you're called to step up and be a part. Because guess what? You have too much talent. You have too much Meaning you have too much of a testimony that could help others to be sitting here on a Sunday morning instead of getting up and sharing that with the world. God has blessed you and given you so much in your personal life that to sit on the sidelines and not use it is almost a disgrace. Look, Scott, take notes. Take, take notes, Scott. And I, and I love you, and I, I say that from a, a heart that says, there are times I come in and I just want to sit. I just want to have a coffee and sit down. But there are definitely times God's calling you to do more and be a part of the game. Put on the helmet, put on the strap. It's time to go. If you want to help people take their next step in their faith walk, it starts with you helping people take their next step, step in their faith walk. I got off on a, a soapbox, but let's move on. <laughs> It leads into to purity. It leads into purity. They say that a pure life is a, God that, is a life that see God, sees God well. The purest water in the world is glacier runoff water. If you were to go see this water, you would be astounded by how pure it is. You would almost say, wow, it's so blue. And I, I hope for a lot of you who have done any scientific research, you know that the water's not really blue. It's just reflecting 
the sky. It's clear. That's why it's the purest water in the world, because it's clear. And true purity is a clear reflection. And so when we talk about purity in this spiritual sense, purity in a spiritual sense is the clearest reflection of Christ. Is your life truly reflecting Christ? Because if it is, then it's truly pure. Oftentimes we talk about purity, and there's not a bad thing about this, but we talk about purity, we say, you know, don't watch this. Don't look over there. Control this. You know, put you know, walls up and guards up on your computer. But what we don't understand is that purity really is in a very simplistic sense. Reflect Christ. Reflect Christ. May your heart be aligned with his, your mind aligned with his, your desires aligned with his, because when it is, we don't have to tell you not to look at certain things. We don't have to tell you what's pure and what's not. You know when we align our reflection with that of Christ. Uh, The more pure our life, the more we look like Jesus. This leads to, again, peacemaking. I know I'm moving a little quick now because I understand what time it is. Um, Lives touched by the grace of God and hunger for God seeks to make peace. If we look at all these ten characteristics and say, I can't really start making peace until I get the other seven down first, then we're missing the point. All these ten characteristics are supposed to be parallel like a train track where as we grow in mourning, we also are growing in peacemaking. As we grow in hunger, we're also growing in purity. I don't want you to see this so linear that you think, well, I never got my heart right, so I'm never going to start making peace. No, grow where you can grow and grow them together as much as you can. Uh, One of the things um, that I love about peacemaking is that peacemaking is not just the job of the pastor in your marriage, in your homes, in your communities, you are called to be peacemakers. We all know at least one person, when they walk in the room, this is what we do. We tense up a little bit. Uh, here comes my boss. Uh, here comes the pastor. Uh, here comes, you know, that person that I, I really, you know, shouldn't have said that stuff on Facebook to them, and now they're in the room, and I'm tensing up because I don't know how they're going to respond. There are people who, when they enter into situations, they bring chaos. They bring a sense of fear. But as Christians, as Christ followers, we are called as we step into rooms, as we step into situations, as we step into our community, that we would be peace bearers. That means as we step into any situation, there should be a sense of, okay, they're here. Or, okay, they can help us. Or, they'll pray for me. They'll help in this situation. The question for you is, does your presence, and for me too, is does your presence bring peace into a room. When you enter a room, do people tense up or do they relax a little bit? And you would probably say it depends on who's in the room. Uh, I'm there with you. There are definitely people that were, if they're in a room, I'm sure they would tense up when they saw me. But we're called to bring peace. Why? Because God is a God of peace who brought peace to us in a situation where there was no hope. So we're called to bring peace into situations where there is no hope and be the light of the world. And that's more in his message. This leads to persecution and hatred. So we say, Preston, if I am all of these characteristics, what will happen? Jesus makes it clear. You do all these things perfectly, you'll be persecuted and hated for it. Great sermon, Preston. It makes me want to leave here and just go do these things. Absolutely, I know. The reason I, I want to get this clear, and because I have to remind myself too, is that oftentimes we want to be the exception to the rule. And here's what I say, is we want to be understood, we want to be liked, we want people to uh, be, come alongside us and help, 
And that's all great things and great longings. But we also follow a God who is never understood. He was never liked by all people. And we will never be understood or liked by all people either because we're called to follow that God. So we say Jesus wasn't liked by everybody, but if maybe he would have changed some of his sermons, he would have been. We say Jesus was never truly understood. In fact, many times he had to explain further, this is what I mean by this message. Yet we think that people will somehow completely understand our motives when we try to love them, when we try to help them. The reality is our lives will never be free from persecution and hatred if we follow Christ the way we're called to follow Christ. The problem is, I believe, some of us don't have a lot of persecution and hatred because our lives don't look much like Jesus' life. And that includes me as well. If I'm trying to say this without, <laughs> without being too, too um, combative because I know in a day and age where uh, we love our country, it, it can be almost, if you even say anything about it, bad, bad about America, you're anti-American, and I don't want to come across that way. Um, what I'm saying is that basically the reason I believe, personally, that there's not a lot of true persecution in our country today is because a lot of people aren't willing to step up and live the life Jesus has called us to live. And when I say persecution, I don't mean that your Facebook post got taken down because you said Jesus in it. If that's your idea of persecution, I promise you, there's people in the Middle East having their children's heads cut off right now because they stand up for Jesus that would happily have their Facebook post taken down. And we live in a country of great freedom, a great freedom of speech, and I'm not telling you you can't exercise that right, but what I am saying is we've got a narrow mind about what persecution looks like in our country, and Jesus had ultimate persecution for his faith, and there are people dying for their faith on the other side of the country, and we get upset because our Facebook post got taken down, or because they didn't write the whole Gospel of Luke on our Starbucks cup during Christmas. I, I love you guys enough to be real. That's not persecution. That's just to some degree, being sensitive. And I, I, I love you, but that's the truth. Persecution and hatred will always follow a true life that reflects Jesus. And when we are persecuted and hated, what should be our response? Joy. God calls us to be joyful in the midst of being hated. And not just hated, like they won't be friends with you, but literally, like they hate your guts. God has called you to have joy in those situations, because that's our worship. Charles Spurgeon, a, a, a famous preacher in London, said this, and I, I think it points to joy. He says, you can judge a man by what he groans after. What do you groan after? And if you don't know what that means, what do you long after right now? Forget everything I said, forget giving me the churchy answers. If you were real with yourself, what's something you're longing for in your life right now? Is it peace after this pandemic? Is it getting your marriage back together and trying to do everything you can to reheal those wounds? Is it a new job, a new start? Hoping that we can somewhat get out of here by 1215, even though it's 1207 and I'm finishing. What are we longing after? And if you were honest with yourself about longing, I think you would find that even for myself as a pastor, if I was honest, there are many times I don't long mainly and primarily for the things that God calls me to long after. And so God says in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hates, in the midst of doing the right thing, you will be hated and persecuted for it, yet choose joy. Joy is a choice that we make every day. It is not something that we have or don't have. We choose every day when we wake up to choose joy 
despite what S. Lewis said it better than I ever could. He said, and I'm paraphrasing because it's not on the screen. He said, if I find that in this world I should have immense trouble, I must first ask myself, was I not created for a different world? In the midst of everything going on in our, our country right now, in the midst of everything going on in our community in Elizabeth City right now, and seeing all the pain, seeing all the hurt, one thing that always encourages me is that I'm not made for this world. God has called me to be with him one day in a world where there is no pain, there is no fear, there is no hurt, there are no more tears. And the gospel message is this as we close, that even if you're in here today and you say, I have none of these characteristics, Pastor, the great news is the gospel. Jesus chose to die for you on your worst day. He chose to die for you on your worst day. Romans 5, 8, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The worst day when you hated God, when you were at your rock bottom, when you had nothing left to give, Jesus still looked at you and said, I will die happily and freely for that man or woman. I love them. They are worth it. I will be there for them. So even on your worst day, remember that Christ chose you. And there's joy in that. There's hope in that. There's freedom in that. There's encouragement for us in the times that we're going through now to knowing that Christ chose us at our worst. If our longings are to be after Jesus, it would almost to me, in a very opinionated way, uh, be the reflection of the old song, Be Thou My Vision, which says this, it's not on the screen, so just listen. Our hearts should almost match up with the, the lyrics of what I'm saying. It says, riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise, thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art high king of heaven my victory won may i reach heaven's joy O bright heaven sun heart of my own heart whatever befall still be my vision a ruler of all let's pray father thank you for your grace thank you for just that you chose to look at me an idiotic 14 year old and even on my worst day when I had nothing to give you, you died for me and rescued me and chose me out of the darkness. God, your grace is bigger than we could ever imagine. Your mercy stretches wider than we could ever fathom. God, in the midst of a weekend where we're trying to find some rest, Father, I pray that you provide real rest, real peace to us, peace that isn't simply defined by, you know, what we have or don't have, but a peace that is rooted in you. God, there's so much in this message that, you know, can be looked at, defined at, and I know that it can be confusing even to some of us still, but I pray, if anything, that each and every one of us, including myself, as we leave here, would work at being the person you've called us to be, as imperfect as that may be, on a day-to-day -day basis, that we would leave with an intentionality to pursue peace, to pursue purity, to pursue meekness, to pursue peacemaking, and, and all these things, God, I pray that we would pursue them and know even when we fall, you're gracious enough to pick us up and love us anyway. God, as we leave here, I just pray that you bless us, have us have a great weekend. And I just pray as we come back next week, we continue to follow you as imperfectly as it may be. And that everything we say and do would be glorifying and honoring to you. We pray it in your name. Amen. Uh, one last thing as you stand up to leave, I just want to say two things. One, we still have like 
eight or nine uh, little cards for VBS on the Kid Venture side. If you're willing to help us, partner with us to get some supplies for VBS, please take one off the window and bring the stuff back whenever you can. And then lastly, uh, we are raffling off a Traeger grill uh, for students, and all the proceeds go to help send students to summer camp and mission trips. If you're interested in purchasing a ticket, my wife and uh, some other people will be at the table in the hallway to give you all the details on that. Guys, I love you. I hope you have an amazing Memorial Day.